Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is another one of our Insight into Isaiah programs. Thanks for coming and being a part of it as we continue our study in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah. In this program, we are at chapter 50 of Isaiah, if you'll turn there with me. And let me uh, just go to the first paragraph of chapter 50. It's a little bit of what I touched on uh, in the last session, but it will give us some connectivity into what we're going to read now. Uh, In this particular um, opening paragraph of chapter 50, it's a little bit of a review of what we just had in chapter 49, and that's the reason why I included it in the last session, in which the, the question is being asked by God about who says that uh, Israel is not part of the Lord anymore. Who says that the God of Israel doesn't have a relationship with the people of Israel? And in particular, the question is directed at the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. And there are many who have advocated, many teachers. In fact, this is still a common teaching today that what God did with Israel, particularly starting with the house of Israel, that God divorced Israel. God got rid of them. Uh, They didn't do his will, so he kicked them out of the land. He scattered them the nations. They've lost their identity, and he no longer has a covenant with them. And that uh, the same thing happened to the house of Judah, and the Romans uh, came along and um, took, took the Jews away from the land, the house of Judah, and destroyed the temple. And that was when God said, okay, enough of Israel, and, and the, the rest of the teaching goes, and God's economy now is the church. That God now works with mankind through the church, as opposed to God was working with mankind through Israel. And the people of Israel. And that is called replacement theology. And it is prevalent in churches today way more than what you would ever understand. In fact, they refer to it as covenant theology. That the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. And you've, of course, heard all the other teachings that go with it. Well, we don't follow the law. That's Old Covenant. We are under God's grace and just the Messiah. That's the New Covenant. And so covenant theology, replacement theology, is uh, is the order of the day. And most of us, if we've grown up in church and church life, this is what we've been taught. This is the theology that has been espoused to us. Um, God, by the way, knew this was going to happen. He knew there would be this kind of conflict uh, that would take place. And so the prophet Isaiah is addressing some of that. And the way of doing that and the way the prophets have done, he says, yes, I have scattered Israel. Yes, I punished them for their disobedience. Yes, I turned my face away from them, but the rest of the prophets turn right around and say, but there's a day coming when I will turn my face back toward them, show compassion to them, and I will regather and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to them. And I will do so because I made these promises to their fathers and I will keep them. And that I will not abhor them to such an extent to as to completely destroy them. 
I will punish them, but they will not be destroyed. And this opening verse here, it begins with these words. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was sent away why was there no man when I came when I called why was there none to answer is my hand so short it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver behold I dry up the sea with my rebuke I make the rivers a wilderness the fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering God's basically making this argument it's a rhetorical one by question and he said yeah I know about this uh, I know what people have been saying I know what you've been saying since I kicked you into the land I said did, did I divorce you and the answer is no I didn't divorce you I punished you um, and the same story could be said of t- take a family you know and you have a young son and he's disobedient so his father uh, decides to give him a spanking. And he gives him a spanking. And then he says, you're going to your room tonight and no supper for you. Does that mean that the father has decided, I am not going to be the father to the son anymore. This son is not going to be part of this family anymore. And this son is not going to remain. And no, we all know, no, that's not true. That that's part of the disciplining and the training that is to be done so that the kid will grow up and be responsible for their behavior and do the right things and follow the instruction of their father and take their rightful place in the family. That's part of the instruction. Uh, And our Heavenly Father, maybe you hadn't thought of this, but by the title of him being our Heavenly Father, it means that he has the right to discipline us. He has authority over us to correct our behavior. In most successful families, the children view the mother in one form. They view the father in a slightly different form. Mother is the one who's always making sure they're tucked in, nurtured, taken care of, nursed, fed. And so what's dad? Dad represents the rules of the house. And by the way, when you get in trouble and mom says, wait till your father comes home, you know you got seriously into trouble. You know, that if you got to face dad. Well, part of the definition, my friends, of talking of our heavenly father is that he's the one who has authority to correct and discipline. And essentially... This is our Heavenly Father. This is the Lord saying to Israel, uh, Who told you that I divorced you? Who told you that I sold you to your creditors and then you're forever lost? I don't have the ability to ransom you out of that situation. I don't have the ability to deliver you out of that situation. I don't have the ability to restore you. One of the things that... uh, we are told in the scripture, and this is the, the, goes to a personal level of this, this instruction. Sometimes we'll see a believer who will really mess up. I mean really mess up. 
to the point where no other brethren want anything more to do with it. It's at that point that we need to be very careful what we say and we do with that brother because the because the way it works and God makes a statement he said if I want I can make that man stand again I have the power to forgive I have the power to restore and I can make him stand again if I choose to do it and if you decide to condemn him and cast him away to never be restored by the Lord not only will I restore him, I'll deal with you. I'll put you in a situation, you know, to show you and prove to you that I have this authority over it. And that's part of what is in the breadth here of what the Lord is saying. And I, 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 let me just summarize this by saying the following. To those of you who may be listening to this program and you go to church... And you're not part of the messianic teaching and so forth. You better stop listening to teachers who are telling you that God cast Israel away. Now, it is true that Israel sinned. And God did exactly what he said he would do through Moses and the prophets. He told them, if you don't obey me, I will cast you out of this land into the hands of your enemies. I'll cast you. I will scatter you through the nations. And he did that. But the same God who said that also said, and from all those different places that I've scattered you, from there I'll bring you back. You can go to Leviticus chapter 26 and see it. You can go to Deuteronomy 30 and see it, and a whole host of other places. Moses and the prophets have been saying this all along. Isaiah has been saying it all along. It's a message of encouragement trying to get Israel to turn back to the Lord. And obviously it would be best if we don't make that mistake to begin with. But the offer of redemption, let me just say this to you, redemption was intended for Israel first. But it is extended to the nations. And the picture of God's redemption is how God deals and brings back Israel. Because if God brings back Israel, after all they've done, then there's no Gentile and no nation that can stand up and say, Oh, our sins are so great that God is not able to save or deliver us. None can say it. Uh, this is part of the definition of why God chose Israel. Not because we're the greatest, but because we're the least. And he's not talking about in numbers. When it comes to being spiritually despicable, we take the cake. We take the cake. And yet God continues to love us, redeem us, and bring us back. And thus, through Israel, proves to the nations. That God's arm is not short that he does have the power to save. And he has the power to deliver. And that's the message that's in here. So I would say to my Christian friends, you better start, uh, you better stop listening to teachers that are telling you that God rejected Israel and now has chosen you. This same God, let me remind you, this same God who judged Israel, you think he won't judge you? And if you saw the way this is the way God disciplined Israel, you don't think he will discipline you the same way? 
So if you want to get yourself into a situation like you see Israel into before they repent, you, you just keep yakking on because God is able to make them stand just as he rose you up from your sins. And you need to come to terms with what is the greater message of the story of redemption and restoration. As I shared with you when we got into this Isaiah study, there are certain phrases and verses in these last 27 chapters called the Haftors of Consolation. They tell this overarching, and, and that's called a, that's the oldest sermon from the Bible. That's the reason why Isaiah is sermonizing. The oldest sermon is this story of that Israel needs to be comforted. Why? Because they've been punished of the Lord. They feel they're forsaken. You know, by God. Oh, oh, God has forsaken me. I'm completely lost. I'm completely undone. And then the Lord says, <clears throat> yes, you're right. I did forsake you. I turned away from you. I punished you. But I, the Lord, I will gather you back. I will bring you back. And I will do so not because of your righteousness. I will do so because of my grace and because of my promises and the covenant I made with your father. And I'm going to fulfill my good word because I'm the Lord. And it comes down to that message. That is the message. That's the reason why I sent the Messiah was to fulfill that, to make a way to redeem the lost, to save those that had no chance and, and uh, to be brought back to, to the Lord's relationship and to his kingdom. So the answer to this is the Lord did not divorce Israel. And by the way, I would also say to my Messianic Jewish brethren, the Lord did not reject the house of Israel either. And B'nai Ephraim, the sons of Ephraim, they will be returning too. And the prophets speak of they'll be joining with the house of Judah. So the brother Judah better not be looking down their nose at all of these messianic brethren that are coming in this generation who appear to be more Ephraimite than they appear to be Jewish. And they need to keep that in mind. God, what God is doing with Israel is the same thing he's doing with the nations. All right. With that said, and kind of bring us forward here, we're going to see some very detailed prophecies about the Messiah again, how this work takes place. So let's begin at chapter 50 and verse 4, where it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient. Nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore... I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? 
Behold, they will all wear out like garments. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have uh, from my hand, and you will lie down in torment. The This phrase, when it first starts out, and it talks about the tongue of a disciple, these are words that are literally explaining. Now, so the Messiah, let's see, he, he was born... And he was a child. There was a time when Yeshua of Nazareth was a child. He was a young person. And he had to go through the process of learning things about God and learning just like every other human being does. And so he submitted himself to be a disciple of God. And Yeshua had to learn in his his physical nature uh, that he was in, just like you and I have to learn. He had to be instructed, and he submitted himself to the instruction. If you recall, one of the famous stories of the Gospels uh, tells us about when Yeshua was about 12 years old. About the age that in the Hebrew culture that you come to the point of being accountable for your own behavior and your own word, your own deeds. And he, they were in Jerusalem. It was one of the festivals. And apparently he's old enough to kind of take care of himself a little bit. His family loads up in the caravan. They're going home after the festival. And all of a sudden they start looking around and they go, well, where's Yeshua? And he's not there. He's not with the caravan. He must still be back in Jerusalem. And so the parents have to turn around and go back, you know, to go get him. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple. Guess what he's doing? He's having serious theological discussions with the religious leaders of the day. He's in there explaining things and reasoning with them because of the amount of study, the, the understanding he had come to know about God, and, and he's having conversations with them about that. By the way, that's one of the natural things that happens as you submit yourself to discipleship in the Lord. As you begin to learn, you'll find yourself in a multitude of discussions with other believers about trying to understand the Lord. And but what is the Lord doing? And in fact, it's a very common thing for churches. In fact, we have teachers in the Messianic movement that advocate this, and I agree 100%, uh, that try to disciple you, the brethren. We're trying to give you the base instruction so that you can rise to the point that you can walk with the Lord, learning from the Lord yourself, and to be continually instructed and walked by the Spirit of the Lord. And there's obviously there's certain basics that you have to be taught. Um, one, when I was a younger man, I received discipleship training. Let me tell you what the basic elements of discipleship training are. Number one is that God has to be the center of your life. He has to be seated on the throne in your heart. You have to accept him as that he's the authority that speaks to you. He is the reference point for all discussions and all understandings. So number one, 
God has to be on the throne in your heart. Number two, there are four ways that you need to have activities to continue to bring that out into your life. One, you need to have a relationship with his word. You need to know what he has said. You need to know what his instructions are. Number two, you have to have enough of a relationship with him that you can converse with him, talk with him, petition him, that you can get interacting with him to build a relationship with him. If you never talk to him, you're never going to have a relationship with God. So that's number two. Number three, you have to learn to fellowship with other fellow believers. You have to learn to get along with other believers and do the common things that God has established. There are certain commandments that are personal for you. There are certain commandments that's for the community of faith. And to obey those, you have to be part of that community. You have to be in fellowship with other brethren. Number four, you have to be able to deal with the non-believing world. You have to be able to live in the midst of them, walking in the light, even though the world is full of darkness. You have to know how to relate to them so that you can uh, deal with them. And, and oh, by the way, if, if we've been called to make disciples, that's when you're going to have the opportunity, because you're a disciple, to share with another and help to put them on the path to become disciples. You have to have a relationship. There's a lot of people that go through this life, and they never once, ever, ever speak to and try to lead another person to the Lord. They're willing to accept the salvation they've received, but, but I don't want to extend it out. And that's one of the, if you will, the spokes of discipleship, and they've never completed their basic discipleship training. And finally, you have to learn to obey the Lord. You have to be able to implement in every step of the way of your life, obey his commandments as you walk out your life. Now, so when we talk about discipleship, when the word disciple is being spoken here, when it says that I submitted myself to be a disciple, that you got up with me morning by morning. I did this daily with you. I heard what you said. Hear, O Israel. Yeah, I listened to what you said, and I wasn't disobedient. I didn't reject your instruction. I did follow to make you Lord of my life. I did receive the base instruction, and I accepted it and, and understand it. I, I began to have a relationship with you. I, I talk with you. I have fellowship with my other brethren. I have a relationship with those outside the faith, and I reach out to them, and I'm, I'm a light to them and an encouragement to them. I'm an ambassador of the Lord uh, to them as well. And, oh, by the way, all of this is happening, and I obey you. Do you know, there's a lot of believers that don't complete this process. And there's things that block them from doing it. And as a result, they get to a certain level, and then they can't learn more. They can't do more. They're constantly stuck in the basics. Uh, they're in the elementary principles of the faith. They don't know how to open the scriptures and go in and receive instruction for themselves.
They're reliant on whatever a man says. It's a little bit like they're babies, spiritual babies, and unless somebody fixes the bottle with the nipple and gets it at the right temperature and lays them down and sticks it in their mouth, they just can't get any nourishment. They just can't survive. A baby who does not have someone feeding them can't live. But the idea, and we all know this, is that we're supposed to grow to the point where we no longer require someone to fix the bottle and stick it in our mouth. We're supposed to come to the point where we can sit at the table and eat for ourselves and leave that table and, and live and, and be a part of all of the things that God's created. This is what discipleship is about. This is the Great Commission. Messiah told his disciples after he was resurrected and just before he left, so he said, go into the world and make disciples in all the nations. Go make disciples. But very few people complete the process of being discipled. There's something kind of missing there. Now, Yeshua, and what these verses are saying is that's what Yeshua did. He first became a disciple of the Lord. He listened. He was obedient. He conversed. He learned how to relate to other people. He learned how to walk before the Lord without his mother or his father having to do everything for him. He learned how to do it. And as a result, he learned how to reproduce and make disciples. And our instruction is that we're supposed to get a relationship with this Messiah to the point that we are strong enough that we go out and make disciples too. We go out and teach others uh, in that same way. And this is a passage that says this is what the Messiah did. When he was a young man, he submitted himself to the instruction and became a disciple of the Lord. And I think the reason why that we have that little story in there when he was about 12 years old of having those conversations with the spiritual leaders was at that point he had covered the basics. He was now perfecting. He was now pulling in wisdom and knowledge and understanding and bringing them to bear so that when he was a grown man and could be accepted by the people as being viable as a teacher, he's ready to go. He is ready to do the work that God had called him to do. And that work was ultimately to lead him to offering himself to do the work of redemption. Obviously, these verses here, I gave my back to those who strike me, verse 6, my cheeks to pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He vindicates me. The, we, we saw the Messiah do that when they arrested him and when they were, set him up for crucifixion. We know the story. The Gospels are very clear about this. But a lot of people, you know, they heard, well, they whipped him. They scourged him. 
you know they they did the Roman thing with the crucifixion and so forth that's an interesting verse because how many of you have ever thought that oh they also pulled his beard out of his face now for all of us who wear beards that means something because I know what that feels like if you just tug on this thing a little too wrong I I can imagine how horrible and horrific that would be um, maybe we didn't think that that was part of the you know we we kind of soft soap if you will what the Messiah had to go through for us when he offered himself and here's the verses that says I set my face like a flint I was not moved I did not resist I offered myself truly and the contrast there of him offering himself versus what he had to endure is just to me personally it's just off the scale oh my gosh and he did that for me to ensure that despite all of my sins my weaknesses my that he could raise me up and move me from the destiny of, and punishment of death to where I can live forever he paid quite a price and he didn't do it just for me he did it for all of us uh, and here's the prophecy saying it would happen if you're looking for a very specific prophecy about the Messiah that you can hand to somebody and say tell me when that prophecy was fulfilled everybody in the world can answer that question even my Jewish brethren that don't believe in Messiah even they can answer this question they know exactly who fulfilled these words because it's a historical fact for us at this time he gets down to the conclusion as I read to you before who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Be, and I want you to take note of this one, verse 11. Behold all of you who kindle a fire. He's not talking about believers here. The people who kindle a fire are the people who are opposed to you. The people who are at odds with you, and Yeshua had many at odds with him, and there was a fire burning with them that they hated him, and they wanted to destroy him. And so that's who we're talking about. Listen to what the verse says again. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands. What they're talking about is that they, they want to harm you, and every one of them have gotten themselves a branding iron. And they have heated it up to where it is glowing hot red. They hate you so much that the fire that's in him makes metal glow. That's how hot and, and fiery they are. And among, among the brands you have set ablaze, you know, you take a, a branding iron, you put it up against, it instantly burns it. It will, in fact, even cause a flame to come up. The simple contact. This you will have from my hand. This is what I'm going to do to you who do this. 
and you will lie down and torment. You know, that glowing hot fire that you want to use against them? He said, wait till you go to the place called torment. And you will understand then that for all that you put, all the hot and the heat that you put into the fire of hatred there, you're going to experience it exactly as you gave it. Measure for measure. That is a just God. And by the way, part of the justice that we learn from God, and he tells us, we should judge not lest we be judged by the same measure. We are taught the principles of equal weights and measures. We're taught the principle that if you extend grace to another person, grace will be extended to you. If you're merciful to another, mercy will be extended to you. If you act with hatred and harm to another's, you will receive measure for measure the same thing. This is one of the principles of why we call God a just God. And we are all following him. I would offer at this moment a tiny bit of instruction to my other messianic brethren who don't get along with their other messianic brethren. Every one of us have the promise of God from our father Abraham, Genesis twelve three. I will bless those that bless thee, I will curse those that curse thee. If you bless your brethren you will receive blessing. But if you decide to take the choice, I'm going to curse this person. Guess what you're going to get? Measure for measure. The Lord will curse you. In the course of my life, um, and I'm no special person, honest to goodness. These are simply principles that apply to everybody. But I've seen these principles apply in my life. I have seen those who rendered blessing to me, and I've seen the Lord bless them. I've also seen those who came and all they were doing was full of curses for me. Now forget all of the just way did they, you know, how in the world did they do it? How do they justify all that? Forget all that stuff. They chose to curse me. And I've seen them, too, receive it measure for measure. I've seen it to the point where I've seen, actually, in some cases, the Lord took people's lives away from them. By the way, those same things extend to you. People who come and curse you, the Lord will deal with them. Now, let me just say to you, there's a great, how shall I say this? There's a peace about that. It's, it's like what the words are saying here. He's the one who vindicates me. I'm not ashamed by what they attempted to shame me with. I set my face as a flint. My trust was in the Lord. And how could the Messiah hold firm to his father despite all the harm that was coming to him? Because he knew God was just and they will not get away with it. For all that they do to me, they will receive. It's just they don't understand how the Lord was going to judge him.
And that's really what is the case of when we're having dynamic where brother against brother is at each other and, and we're doing harm to each other. Let me just tell you, it's because the brethren are ignorant as to who the Lord is and how just he is, and you are not going to get away with slandering, harming, and cursing other brethren. I don't care how self-righteous you think you are. You're not getting away with it. The guilty will not go unpunished. And it would be measure for measure. So you might want to be a little bit more kindly to one another. You might want to actually kind of love one another so you can receive that as opposed to the other. And when you see someone erring, and you see them making huge mistakes, and you disagree with them and all of that kind of thing, you can repeat what the Lord has said about that matter, but don't step to the level of you being judge and jury over them. You leave them to the Lord on that. But you can address you know, the issues that are affecting you and your community, and you can repeat what the Lord has said, and let the Lord take care of it from there. That's the proper way to do that. There is a proper way to have righteous indignation without moving to the level of anger and bringing judgment upon yourself. There is such a thing as righteous indignation, and that's right and appropriate. Um, and so be careful, because in effect, when you go and attack a brother, our own Messiah was attacked. He knows what it's like to be attacked. And um, so, if, and, and by the way, you're going to be attacked too. If you're a follower of the Messiah, plan on it. You too will have people who will not like you and they will be opposed to you and they will hate you for no cause because you drink from the same cup that your master drinks from. You've chosen to follow him. And you have to bear your cross, too, just like he did. Now, the good thing is, the Lord knows all about that. He's a just God, and believe you me, anything that it costs you in this kingdom, you will definitely be paid in full, and you will be rewarded. And after it's all said and you're done, you'll say, thank you, Lord, for all that I got to be a part of, and thank you for letting me be a part of your kingdom. And nobody's going to be in the kingdom saying, you know, I was kind of mistreated by so-and-so, and I don't think that that was really justly taken care of. Believe you me, you'll be able to say, yes, it was justly taken care of. And I don't have a problem with God's judgment on this matter at all. Amen? All right, so that brings us to the conclusion of chapter 50. I have a few more minutes. Let's get into chapter 51. And I, I love this passage because this is such a profound thing that I wish my brethren could, all of my brethren could come to terms with. Listen as I read to you. It's in fact, the first word is listen. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you are hewn 
and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was one, I called him, and I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And in her wilderness, he will make, make it like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and a sound of a melody. So he's speaking and he's saying, good things are coming, good things are in the future, but let's now go back and say, why is he, what is he trying to invoke from us? What, what is it we're supposed to be listening to? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? And it's in this verse, look to, he said, look to the rock, this is verse 1, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Who is the rock of salvation? It's the Messiah. The Messiah is the rock of salvation. Moses has been teaching that to us from the very beginning. All the way up to, we even have hymns, Rock of Ages. Did you know that that's both a Jewish hymn as well as a Christian hymn? My Jewish brethren are calling on the rock of salvation just as much as Christians are. They just don't quite know that we're really talking about the Messiah. They're thinking it's God. Well, it is God. But my Christian brethren have come to terms with it. It's also the Messiah, the work of the Messiah. And he says, look to that rock. Okay? And uh, I want to... Um, I don't have it here with me at the moment. I should have brought it. But let me tell you about it. When, when I was on one of the tours of Israel, and I was leading a tour several years ago, I happened to take the tour group down to an area called Caesarea, which is down on the coast. And that used to be where the Roman um, port was built, and uh, Herod's summer palace was there, and it was a, a thriving uh, community and commerce and trade. And it was kind of right in the center of Israel, but it was on the Mediterranean Sea, and the Romans had built this port and, and so forth. And I was taking a tour to Israel. I took some brethren down there. We went and saw it. Took them out there where how immense Herod's palace used to be. There's no walls to it anymore. It's just the foundations of it. And and in that area, to take them to the community of Caesarea and see the port and all the things that were there. Well, as we're walking along the edge of the beach by Herod's palace, I happened to notice there was this one rock in the beach in the surf and it stood out from all the other rocks because the reason why it stood out it was a beautiful piece of roman marble it was marble um, and it was all smoothed off and all rounded off there was this broken piece but it, it because of shuffling in the surf for couple of thousand years it has now become a nice smooth rock I mean it just fits perfectly in your hand and a beautiful piece of Roman marble where did that rock come from and how did it come to be in that place I can tell you see that used to be Herod's palace and one of the things he had in his palace was he had a whole bunch of statues Roman statues brought from Italy from Rome brought to decorate his palace and in the course of events that have taken place, either wars or earthquakes or whatever has transpired since that time, that statue fell over and broke into pieces. 
And it fell into the Mediterranean Sea right there. And then for years, the Mediterranean Sea has been kicking that thing around uh, in the surf and in the sand and so forth. And just sanded this thing down to where it's just this beautiful, smooth, marble rock. And I'm, I'm standing there with the brethren, and I hold it up, and I show them this. And I said, I'm holding one of the pieces of the statues in Herod's palace. See, we can take that, we can go back and see where did it come from. One of the things spiritually that we're supposed to do on a regular and frequent basis is think back now, how did you get your sins forgiven? From what rock did you come from? Where, where, where did you come from? How is it that you're here to, how is it that you're a created being? How did this all get started for you? But then, even more so, for us as believers, I, I truly believe this is extremely profound. In fact, I try to teach this in every audience that I get to. He says, uh, and to the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham your father and Sarah your mother. Do you see, it's our father, Abraham, that we're given all the promises that you and I enjoy right now. He's the one, you know, who got the promise from God. He says, I will uh, cause you to increase. I will make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. Your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven. There's going to be a whole bunch of you. And, oh, by the way, uh, the promises that I'm making to you are to your descendants. And your descendants are going to be part of this family of which you would be the father of Abraham. Now, it goes beyond even being a physical descendant. It goes to the level of what the scripture teaches us of being adopted. By the way, did you know, I don't care where you physically, your physical lineage is, I don't care where your 23andMe or Ancestry.com says you came from. When you become a believer in the Messiah, you just became part of Abraham's family. And Abraham is your father. Sarah is your mother. You are the children of promise, as Paul says. That was what all of Israel was supposed to be. That, they were supposed to model that to the world. We are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That we're that children, the children of Israel. And it goes back to that, uh, that God had a relationship with Abraham in which that he's called Abraham uh, his friend. He wasn't just a creator God who made mankind, but he said of Abraham that he was his friend. And it says of Abraham as opposed to other men is that Abraham walked before the Lord. By the way, there's a contrast there. It says Noah walked with God, but Abraham walked before the Lord. When you walk before someone, you don't necessarily see them. But if you're interacting with them, it's what you hear. They say something to you, like, for example, if you're walking before someone, you listen to the voice behind and says, oh, turn to the right here. 
you follow that voice, you turn. The, the relationship that God established with Abraham, the one that we're supposed to be having, is, is that we don't see God immediately in his presence, but his presence is there, and we listen to his instruction. Hear, O Israel. Listen. Hear what the Lord says. And then follow that instruction. That's those that come from the relationship that God established with Abraham. And as descendants of Abraham and as the family of Abraham, we walk before the Lord just like our father did. We hear his voice. We do what he says. We're not at odds. We don't turn around and say, who said that? We know. We know who we have a relationship with. In particular, the greatest of those promises that Abraham received, which we all cling to, is the one where he said that in your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. God promised to Abraham, someone will come forth from you that will bring blessing to every family in the earth. It won't just be your physical descendants. It will benefit the whole world. Now, Paul tells us that particular passage of Scripture, that particular discussion, says that's when God preached the gospel for the first time. You know, you ever heard any different teachers talking, well, what's the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is, the good news is, that God has a plan for all the families of the earth to be part of his kingdom. And to do that, you have to become part of the family of Abraham. And so Isaiah is calling them back to this. Look to the quarry from where you were dug. You know, here, like, like that piece of marble. You know, I'm holding it right here in my hand. I have it. Where did this come from? What was it before this? Well, it was a Roman statue. Yeah, but go all the way back to the quarry. Where was the place where the rock was pulled out of the mountain, out of the bigger rock? Was that back in Italy? Was that back there with the the empire back there? That That's where that originates. Well, in the case of us is we dig all the way back to our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those fathers, those mothers, and that's where we've originated. That's the original quarry of where we all come from. That's where every one of us is a rock, where we all come from. Um, there is a um, Greek myth, and I can't give you the exact name. It starts with a P. So I won't attempt to try to pronounce it. In which that there's a man who takes a piece of marble. And he carves on this and chips away and chiseled away at this. And he creates out of it a beautiful statue of a woman. And he falls in love with the woman. You know, that was made there. And it's, it's part of a myth. It's, it's, it's one of these Greek mythological stories uh, of it and to, to see what the end result was. 
and the the it talks about the concept of um, the creation and the creator it talks about there's a certain bond that exists there uh, in that relationship and let me submit to you that that's the the same bond exists between our creator god and us why in the world does god love us so much part of the answer is because he created us and he likes what he created he loves what he created everything about what he created is just utterly fascinating to him just like the story of the man who created the beautiful form of a woman and fell in love with her um, there's a lot of these metaphors and parallels that talk about the, what a rock represents let me shift gears just for a moment with you and show how extensive that is. Uh, we're using the word rock, but you could use another word to represent the same thing, and you could call it a stone. And there are places in the scripture, uh, going all the way back to Genesis, when Jacob is giving blessings, that he talks about the stone of the Lord. In fact, it was part of the blessing that was given to Joseph. And in the Hebrew, the word for stone is eben. And it's a contracted word. The word eben actually is the word av, father, put with the word ben, son. So when you put the father and your son together, it becomes a stone. Now, just like a rock and just like a stone, it, let's say that you break it. If you break a stone, what do you have now? Just two stones. You didn't change the definition of what the stone is. You just have two smaller stones now. And the same thing is with a rock. If the original was this, and a piece of it has been broken off, and that's where you've been quarried from, that's where you come from, you are exactly still the same thing that was. It has not changed. It has not morphed into something else. And so what I want to say to you is the following. You come from Abraham. When you read in the scriptures in Genesis about God's relationship with Abraham, he's the one that just simply set the first example for you. That's your relationship with, with God too. You're from the same rock that he comes from. You're from the same quarry that he comes from. You know what you should do is you should go up one of these evenings when it's a nice starlit night and look up and listen to the Lord say, look at all the descendants that are going to come from you. Because that promise applies to you too. Look at the next time you see the ocean. And you go to the beach, and you know what those little grains of sand are like. And look, and, and, and listen to the Lord when he says, he says, I will cause the blessings that come from you to be like the sands of the sea. That's how prolific you will be and prosper under me and my kingdom. And your descendants will prosper too. That's what you're going to be a part of. And all of a sudden, that kind of changes the dynamic on the relationship, doesn't it? 
it always concerns me, always concerns me, when I hear believers cite the Messiah as the pinnacle of their faith, and they stop there and they don't ask, where did the rock come from? We're here. How is it that we get to be the recipients of these great promises of God? Where, where did the promises come from? And here's the problem. There's a whole lot of our brethren going around and citing the Messiah. And they have no idea about the promises and the heritage that God has given to us. They have no idea about it. They had no idea that that's part of their life too. I have a teaching series called Abraham, uh, The Heritage of Our Faith, and it talks about Abraham and trying to explain all of the things we as modern-day believers receive and get to have because of what God established with our father Abraham, that it is extended to us. And what being the children of promise means, what Isaiah is talking about here. Isaiah is telling us some wonderful and incredible things. You know, about who we are and who do we belong to and who the Lord really is and who the Messiah really is and how all of this works to our benefit and our faith in the midst of the crazy world that we have today. Amen. So that's our study for this time. We'll look forward to getting further into chapter 51 in our next session. Shalom, everyone.